All right, so I grew up in Nottingham. Everyone say Nottingham. Nottingham. And then say AKA Shottingham. <laughs> okay, so Nottingham is the UK gun crime capital of the UK. It's a rough spot. It's not so nice. Um, there's a lot going on, but it's kind of rough around the edges. I grew up in a really nice part of Nottingham, and I grew up in a Christian home, which is a blessing, right? But I didn't know that God was good. I thought that God was angry and out to get me, and I had no understanding, no idea that God was good, and he was my dad who loved me unconditionally. And so as a result of my picture of God, I lived a life according. I lived a life where I didn't know that God was good and in a good mood, and he was pleased to see me. I thought God was angry and he was waiting to punish me. And so my life became angry, and my life became hurt, and what began to happen in me is I would walk around my school and the most important thing to me was popularity of my peers. I don't know, I don't think it ever really changes from high school. I think it's the same in the workplace or, or wherever you go. It's almost like a ladder system. And there's people at the bottom of the ladder and people at the top. You know, there's the cool kids and then there's the rest of them. I don't think it really ever changes. And how do you move up the ladder is I think you've got to bring someone who's, abo who's above you down a peg or two. Have you ever noticed that? How there's kind of a pecking order everywhere you go. And in order to move up it, it's, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And I grew up in a high school that was just like that. And I realized that I could do certain things that would bring me popularity, but it would cause me to violate who I was. And God placed within me dreams and visions and passions and desires from a young age. I knew Jesus. But I was so twisted up in my picture of God that I got confused. And what happened was, instead of living out the things that God put within me, I was so preoccupied by wanting to be popular that I began to violate my conscience and who I was. And so, as the cigarettes got passed around, I started to smoke. Why? Because it gained popularity. And as the cigarettes became cannabis and marijuana, I'd join in. And as the marijuana became ecstasy, I'd join in. And soon I was playing soccer, snorting cocaine in the bathrooms. Why? Popularity. All for the sake of being popular. All for the sake of fitting in. All for the sake of getting some kind of credit from the people around me. At the time, I didn't know it. Now, as I look back with the revelation God's given me, He showed me there was a fruit in my life, and therefore there was a root in my heart. Wherever you see a fruit, there's a root. And He began to show me that the root that was in my heart, that was driving my decisions, was a need to be popular. And so recently I've asked God, well, where did that, where did that come from? What is, where did the root start to grow? Have you ever done that? Try to trace back decisions that you make and ask the Lord why? It's a fun game. <laughs> but I began to ask him, why, where did that come from? Where, where, where did that need to just fit in and be popular, be driven by it come from? And the Lord began to, well, he took me back to this event that I went to. He took me back to my bedroom, first of all. And there's a song by a band called Delirious. You guys remember that? Cool. You get my seal of approval. Delirious was my favorite band, and there was this song called History Maker. It said, I'm going to be a history maker in this land. Come on, you know it. I'm going to be a speaker of truth to all mankind. As I began to sing it, I had visions of stadiums filling up in my country. This is a young kid. Had pictures of just God moving and doing, like, Billy Graham fascinated me. Because I'm like, come on, do it again. I'm going to be a history maker. I'm going to be a speaker of truth. And I'd pump myself up like, woo, 
get really excited for what God had put in my heart. And then God took me to this event called The Art of Connecting. I was about 12, 13 years old. And I went to this event, and, I, and, I, and it was all about how to reach your friends for Jesus, right? The art of connecting your friends to Jesus. And I had these, they began to play, guess which song? History Maker. And I get so excited. Come on, Jesus, History Maker. I'm going to be a speaker of truth to, to all mankind. And then as I'm singing, and I'm lost in worship, and I'm young, and, I, and things haven't happened in my life much yet. I don't have much life experience. But in the back of the room, almost like a mental movie, this man walks into the church building. Like, not in reality, but a mental movie. You understand that? Walks into the church building dressed in a suit. And I see him at the back of the aisle, and I'm just stood worshiping, and in my mind's eye, this man's at the back of the room. And he's taking a step, and another step, and another step towards me. And as he's walking, I begin to get goosebumps all up my arms, and it really doesn't feel good. And I start to become really, really gripped by fear. And I can feel the sweat starting to come on my forehead, my brow. And this man kept walking closer and closer and closer, and he sat down in the row behind me. And he put his feet up in the row that I was sat in, tilted his head back, and began to laugh. And he laughed, and he laughed, and he laughed. You're not going to be a history maker. You're not going to be a speaker of truth to all mankind. And from that moment, things started to happen in my life where I made choices which changed the trajectory of my life. I started to get bullied in school. I started to want to be popular. I started to want to fit in. I started to want to be in the crowd and not opposed to the crowd. I didn't want to lead people around me. I wanted to just fit in. And this need for popularity began to come. Why am I talking about this? One, because I want you to know where I've come from and how far God's taken me. But two... Because I want to speak to you this morning about a man who I think has become a storybook. And we've lost the realness of the character in the Bible, the way that he thought, the emotions that he had, the feelings that he went through, the things that impacted his decisions and the consequences he had are rooted in a real person. This isn't a storybook. This isn't a children's bedtime story. It's the man of Jonah, and it's the book of Jonah. And I believe that Jonah had a popularity complex. I'll show you why. 2 Kings 14, 23 through 25, we read this. He restored the border of Israel from Label Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from gath Hepha. Let's just say that. I don't know. If you don't know how to pronounce something, say it with confidence and you'll be fine. So, Jonah, God uses him to prophesy to King Jeroboam II. King Jeroboam II, if you don't know, wasn't a very nice king. He wasn't a good king. He wasn't a faithful king. He didn't really make very good decisions. He didn't have wisdom in him. But what he did do, God prophesied to him through Jonah, Israel was going to expand its border and take new territory. Agreed? So, happy days. Let's go. Next slide. Amos 6, 13 to 14. You who rejoice in Lodabar and say, Have we not by our own strength taken Karnim for ourselves? For behold, I'm going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God of hosts, and they'll afflict you from the entrance of where? Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. Well, that's the land that Jonah prophesied they would take, isn't it? And then Amos comes along and says, Actually, no, you're not going to have it anymore. 
Could you imagine God tells you to go and tell the king, let's go, all right, the president of the United States, the territory's going to be expanded. You get told to go do that. You go, hey, territory's going to be expanded. Great. And it happens. Agreed? And then another prophet comes along and says, actually, you know what? Because you got proud, you're going to lose that territory now. How do you feel as the first prophet? How do you feel as the first prophet? Remember the Old Testament standard for prophecy because it becomes God's voice in print is 100% accuracy, right? So Jonah's got to be accurate. Jonah's got to be on top of his game. Jonah has to be, it has to come to pass. Otherwise, Deuteronomy says, no longer hold that man in honor. You no longer have to fear that man. It means no longer hold him in honor. Well, I think you'd agree with me that if he messes up a prophecy, he loses popularity. (laughs) Not just with his friends, but on a national stage. So Jonah has a history of God telling him to do something, and the very thing that God tells him to do gets reversed. What happens in the book of Jonah? Jonah says to God, we'll read it together later, but he says to God, isn't this what I said to you, Lord, would happen when I was still at home? That you would relent and have compassion on your people. Well, for me, that's a fruit and a root. Jesus, isn't this what I said would happen? What's Jonah talking from? He's talking from his track record. He's talking from his history. He's talking from what's happened within him. He's talking about, God, I didn't trust you because I never really got to grips with what was happening in my heart in my relationship to you. My picture of you was different than the reality of what was happening. You know, Jonah's life was a story of miracles and accurate prophecy, spending time with kings and royalty, being known as a prophet, and yet he never adjusted his heart attitude. So Jonah experienced so much, but the bookends of his life are grumbling and mumbling. I believe because there's fruit in his life that had a root that he never dealt with. So it's a fun game to do with the Holy Spirit is to ask him, hey, what's the root? Book of Jonah... I believe he's got so much to pay. Let's go through it together. Jonah 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. There it is again. The word of the Lord comes to him again. Second time round, right? Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Well, you know what? The wickedness of Nineveh is pretty well documented. What was happening in the city of Nineveh was they were incredibly violent. The Assyrians were the most, one of the most violent regimes to ever walk the face of the earth. They didn't just take their enemies and do bad things to them. They took their enemies, beheaded them, put the head of the enemies on the city gates, and then removed them and brought them to the banqueting hall. Sorry, this is graphic. R-rated. And they put it up on the table... And feast in the presence of their enemies. These sound like people that you want to get to know. Friendly people. It's wickedness has come up before me. The other thing they did is they would go into foreign lands. They'd take the people that they conquered. And they'd hand out their body parts as souvenirs. Nineveh City. There's a song in an English play. Nineveh City was a city of sin. Nineveh City made a terrible din. The the noise of Nineveh was the noise of its enemies being treated violently. And God says, your wickedness has come up before me. Pretty bad place, right? Yeah, I want to spend time there. No. Especially if I've got a message which is against them. Don't know if I could do it. 
But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Well, we know when we look at a map, and I'm probably preaching to the choir, but Tarshish is in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh. You know that? Jonah runs literally as far as he possibly can away from God's tell- where God's telling him to go. Next slide. Jonah says, nope, not me, never again. When I got intimidated in that church, in that mental movie, I made a vow inside my heart that I would never do it again. I'd never declare again I'm going to be a history maker. I'd never be a speaker of truth to all mankind because it's just going to cost me way too much. And I think Jonah did the same thing. Nope, not me, never again. Next slide. Jonah 1.3, he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Watch this. If you try and run away from who you are, your destiny isn't what you will do. Your destiny is who you are. If you try and run away from who you are, you will pay a price. Jonah paid the fare and went aboard. Jonah had to take money out of his pocket. Jonah had to give something in order to run. Jonah had to proactively plan. Jonah had to make something happen in order to get away. If you try and run away, not just from what God's told you to do, but from who you are, if you try and run away from your destiny, you have to pay a price. I agree that if we do what God asks us to do, there is a price to pay. I agree with that. There is, of course, a price to pay. But there's also a price to pay when we violate our conscience and try and run away from who we are. Next slide, if we can. And then the next one, because I just said it without a slide. (laughs) The price that I see we see in the book of Jonah, I'm going to read it to you. But Jonah ran away, headed to Joppa, paid the fare, went aboard, and sailed to Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. You see, the price that I believe this scripture begins to outlay for us is that Jonah, when he tries to violate who he is and run away, the price that he has to pay is he goes below deck. He's on a ship and he's below deck. Have you ever looked at a ship and studied it, but below deck, it's dark. Below deck is hidden. Below deck is isolated. If we know anything from being believers and walkers and children of the light, we know that dark isn't good. We know that in dark corners, things hide. Jonah is trying to hide, not just from God, not trying to run just from God, but from everybody around him. Have you ever noticed when you make a decision where you violate your conscience, how you want to hide? First thing Adam and Eve do when they fall in the garden, what do they do? They hide. There's something in us that wants to hide when we're doing something that we shouldn't. And where do we hide? We hide where we can't be seen. It's isolation. I think the price from saying no to your destiny, not what you do but who you are, is you have to go below deck. Next slide. Jonah, lay down. Everyone else is busy. He says, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Everyone's throwing cargo overboard. Everyone's running around trying to make the storm stop or do something just to get through it. But Jonah's lying down. Everyone else is helping, but Jonah's lying down. If you try and keep saying no to the call that God's put on your life, if you keep saying no to what God's asked you to do, 
every opportunity that comes calling, you'll say no and you'll just sail by. Everyone else is busy and helping and you just want to be alone. Everyone else is doing something and you've got no energy to get up. Have you ever noticed when you violate your conscience, when you sin, when you do something you don't want to, like the haze descends and the fog descends and you're walking around as if you're in a slumber? Have you ever noticed that? You have to lay down. The next slide, Jonah went into a deep sleep. He's below deck. He's isolated. It's dark. It's probably moldy. (laughs) He's lying down. Everyone else is busy. He doesn't want to get involved. Jonah two or three times says, it's better for me to die. I think Jonah suffered with depression. Jonah's in a deep sleep, and he's trying to sleep to fast forward the storm. If I just sleep through this, if I just close my eyes, if I just lay down, this is all going to go away. If I just bury my head in the sand, if I just keep going, if I just keep plowing through, things will change all around me. But the truth is, storms in our life come for different reasons. If we study the scriptures, storms come because that's just life sometimes. Storms come because there's demonic interference. And storms come because of choices that we make. This storm in Jonah's life, we read it in Jonah. Jonah says, pick me up. And throw me into the sea. It will become calm because I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. In order to end the storm, Jonah has to take responsibility for it. In order to change his circumstances, Jonah has to say, it's me. Jonah has to come out from below deck and he has to come into the light. Jonah has to come out from his place of hiding and he has to be corporately accountable and responsible. You know, when you try and run away from who you are, when you say no to what God's asked you to do, when you keep letting opportunities pass you by, if you want to end that storm, if you want to end that season of lying in your bed and not having any energy and letting fog overtake you, if you want to get out and get up and take your mat and walk and get busy and see the world around you change, the vision of this house to empower people to fulfill their dreams and change the world around them. If you really want to dive in and get stuck in and join in and see the kingdom of God expand in St. Charles and in Illinois and Missouri and the United States and the nations, you've got to get out from below deck and come into the light. There has to be something in you that says, I refuse to stay in this place anymore. I refuse to keep saying no to what God's put in me. I refuse to let life pass me by. I'm not too old. It's not too late. Time hasn't gone. I've got to get up, get busy, take responsibility for what's happened. The storm won't pass until you come into the light. Hey, you can shout me down. I enjoy it. You can shout, hey, hey, man, woo-woo. You're going to like this bit. How did Jonah end the storm? He takes responsibility for it, and then we know the story. What happens? They throw him overboard, and who swallows him up? A whale or a great big fish. A great big fish swallows Jonah up. So Jonah literally says, it was me. 
Woof! Takes responsibility, falls into the ocean, takes full, it's over, it's done. I'm going to surrender afresh. I'm going to lay myself into the mercies of God. I'm going to rely fully on his grace and not what I can do anymore. I give up. I've had it. That's it. God, take over. And he falls over into the ocean and he says he feels like he's going to drown and he's going to die. But God sends him a whale to swallow him up. The process that you go through to take you on your journey might feel like a whale. But it has far more significance than you will ever know at the time. Do you know why? Watch this in the story of Jonah. Nineveh city, the city of sin, made a terrible din. And Jonah was called to go to. You know who they worshipped? Dagon. Dagon had a uh, wife as well. Can't remember her name. (laughs) You know who they were? Fish demigods. The people of Nineveh worshipped a fish demigod. A god which was half man and half fish. And God takes Jonah, puts him in the belly of a great big fish, and delivers him to Nineveh. Smelling like fish. Fish seaweed stuck in his hair. His skin's all been eaten by stomach acid. And he looks like a fish. The God that they worship delivers the messenger of the God of the heavens and the earth. Come on, that's exciting. And it has so much more significance than we realize. Because as Jonah relies fully on God, as he surrenders afresh and puts down his life, God takes him and makes it look like it was always part of the plan. And he does it so well, he knits everything together that will make anything that you've walked through, any decision that you've made, any mess up that you've done, any sin that you've done, and he can knit it together to make it look like it was always part of the plan. He can make it look like it was always part of the plan. Joseph says, what you intended for harm, God's intended for good. He is the master at turning bad situations and turning them around for good. You know, your wounds today can become your scars tomorrow. Your testimony can become your victory. What's happened to you can become a voice that you can call to the nations. You see, the sword that comes against you Go with me back to that that church where I was, where I had that vision. The sword that comes against you is so often the sword which you're called to wield. Hey, I've got a cool thing for you to look at. I'll say it again. Woo! Come on, this is exciting. The sword that comes against you, chill, is so often the sword that you are called to wield. The thing about the sword of your destiny is it's not supposed to be pointed inward. It's to be pointed outward. You know, the great narrative of Scripture, meta-narrative of Scripture is a posh word called Missio Dei. means the mission of God. It's God's mission, and we get to join in. It's his redemption plan, and we get a part to play in it. And he equips you with a sword, with a destiny, with a purpose, with many plans to it, which you are called to wield. And I know the enemy comes to intimidate you and tell you, I swear I was going to poke the light. 
The enemy comes to intimidate you and stop you and pull you down so that you don't wield your sword and so that you point it inwards. But your sword's always to point outwards to the people around you. You see, your destiny isn't really about you. Your destiny is about the people around you. We see it so often in the church. It's never really about a preacher. It's about the relationship the preachers have. The anointing isn't on the people. The anointing's on the relationship. And so the destiny, the purpose of God, the sword that you're called to wield is to be pointed outwards and never inwards. Who did Jesus compare himself to? His father. Who did he say that he came as a sign? Out of all the prophets, who did Jesus say? Jonah. He said Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish and I'm going to go to a cross and I'm going to die and I'll come back to life three days and three nights. And so Jonah is a direct foreshadowing of Jesus. But Jesus didn't have a popularity complex. Jesus' root didn't bear rotten fruit. Jesus' root, wherever he went, brought the life of God, brought the kingdom of God. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's within you. It's here. It's now. And the roots that he had, the relationship with the Father, wasn't a distorted picture of an angry God. The roots that Jesus had was, this is my son with whom I am pleased. Jesus knew that the Father loved him unconditionally. And because the fruit, the root that was in Jesus was good, it was solid, it was inspired, it was, Jesus is amazing. The fruit that he bore was healthy and it was good. The sword that Jesus had, who's worthy to receive praise forever and ever and ever and could make it about me, me, me? If there's one person, it's Jesus. But he didn't. He left his splendor and his royalty and heaven and he was born into a dirty stable. Angels upon angels giving him praise and adoration and he took on skin and bones and flesh and came to walk. God moved into the neighborhood. He could have made it all about him but instead he made it all about you. The sword that Jesus had to wield He pointed outwards everywhere that he went. Jesus was always on the lookout for what the Father was doing. And he didn't have a popularity complex because even on the cross, he's been stripped naked, he's been whipped, he's been beaten, he's been humiliated, he's been scorned, he's been tortured. And they call out to him and they say, you came to save us, but you can't even save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are who you say you are. And so Jesus has the most public humiliation. In front of every eyewitness, he's a failure. Everyone who's watching says Jesus has blown it. Jesus wasn't who he says he was. Disappointment sits in in people's hearts. We feel like it's the day of death and everything's over. But inwardly, privately, Jesus is doing what he says his father told him to do. And privately, he's in victory. Privately, he's saving the world. And publicly, he's humiliated. Jesus didn't have a popularity complex because he was so concerned with what the father thought that publicly he'd be ashamed. But privately, he's saving the world. God will call you to do things where publicly you look silly. I mean, praying for the sick sometimes looks silly. 
privately, there's a great reward. I'm going to ask you if this morning you need to get shaken up and free of something. You've cared for too long like I did what everyone around you is thinking. What so-and-so thinks of the way that you look, the way you do your hair, the way you smell, the clothes that you wear. Wait, is that your speak? <laughs> or they care about the music you're into or the sports that you like or you're on that ladder of popularity at work or at school and you feel like actually you know what I've been below deck and I'm isolated and I'm hidden and I'm feeling like this storm just needs to go away but actually it won't until you surrender if you this morning feel like that's you in any way shape or form there's some popularity thing going on and encounter three And on the three, I want you to stand up. And the reason I'm going to ask you to stand up like this isn't because I want to laugh at you or point you out, but the thing that you're struggling with is what everyone thinks of you. You see that? So the way that you break it is you stand up and immediately it goes to your feet. Do you see that? And as you get up, I want you to place a hand on your heart and I'm going to read a poem over you. And as I read that poem, the words, you can just own them. And it's a new anthem for you. It's a new declaration for you. I can give you this and you can print it out and put it in your bathroom mirror. This is for you to declare your identity every single day of your life because you're going to be free of this popularity thing. This morning, the chains that have held you back, they're going to fall off. So one, this is your time. Two, this is your moment. Three, stand to your feet. Holy Spirit, I thank you for every person that has stood. I thank you for every person that sat. I thank you for those that want to stand up and they're about to and they haven't done it yet. I thank you that the chains are gone, that they loose right now as this person stood. I thank you that the chains are at their feet. And I thank you for this poem, Father. I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognized or praised or rewarded. I live by faith, lean on His presence. Walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by Holy Spirit power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven. My road may be narrow, my way rough, my companions few, but my guide is reliable, my mission is clear. I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. 
I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of the adversary. I will no longer negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I must give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he does come for his own, he'll have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Jesus, I thank you for everyone under the sound of my voice. I thank you that today's a new day. I thank you that tomorrow is in the past. I thank you that everything that was sacrificed this morning can be turned around for good. I thank you that everything that was spoken out can be made to look beautiful beyond where it was before. I thank you, Father, that it's never too late and we, our best sacrifice is not too little. I thank you, Father, that today is a day of new beginnings. A line has been made in the sand. We've stepped over it. And our identity as children of God, loved without condition. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen.